0: Good morning. So welcome everybody, this is Fred Schankelberg, and today's Ascendo Reliability webinar is on um, three kinds of conversations or discussions that uh, I'm sure you've experienced, and, I, and I've certainly run into a good set of them. But, uh, you know, in general, when we talk about reliability stuff, um, sometimes we're talking about goals or objectives or whatever we're trying to achieve, and sometimes we run into a problem with just the definition of what we're trying to achieve. You know, is it a lower failure rate? Well, how do we define failure? If It's a particular uh, field failure performance or field reliability performance. Well, to what degree? What what is the... proportion to be successful and over what duration. Uh, thanks, Nesri. Uh, and the goals, objectives, you know, all those kinds of things and where we're trying to go is is often part of our conversations. We also set up plans, right? We, we either are incorporated into the development plan or we're working with vendors on how they're future products are going to perform in our products, or we're working on a development project or outlining a, a factory. And and we lay out lots and lots of options, and it's always a discussion as to uh, what are the resources, what are the outcomes, who's going to get the results of these different activities, who needs to be involved. We always get the sample size conversation. All kinds of good stuff goes there. And then we also get failures. and. Failures occur all through the process, and we treat failures in very different ways, but the, they often are a topic of conversation. And they are a way uh, for us to communicate reliability priorities. All three of these things are just three quick examples of what would spark a conversation of one sort or another. So let me pause there and ask this Ho- hopefully, not a a uh, rhetorical question, but we'll use the chat window. Um, You know, are you having predominantly good discussions where it's productive and useful and it's people are understanding how reliability fits into the group or into the product development or in your your situation, or are they, um, you know, bad conversations and it's not, terribly bad, I'd say, they're asking questions, they're providing a little pushback, they want to understand more, those kinds of things. Or would you say it's ugly conversations, they're just ignoring it and um, they they don't get it, those kinds of things. So use the chat window. Um, are you in the good, bad or ugly realm most of the time? This gives me a chance to take a sip of water. Yeah, good, good. All right, thank you, Michael and Bartholomew, a mix. Yeah, I kind of suspected that would happen. Um, (laughs) Ugly for the out out group, bad, in group. Yeah, those that get it, Nelson, tend to have, tend to get it and, um, uh uh-oh, Leon, uh, we'll have to work on that. But it gives you an opportunity when it's in the bad category. We'll, we'll sort of that out. Interested but somewhat confused. Good, David. That, that sounds like you're on a good spot. All right. All right. And well, good, good. Thanks, everyone. And let's see. So I'm going to start with the good ones, just because that was the order of this uh, uh, rip off of a movie title. But the idea is, is that these ones, we can just reinforce uh, they're, they're conversations, when you hear, hey, you know, David, it's time to update the FMEA, here's some more information, we need to, to make sure that happens, and it's, you're being pulled into um, getting information, uh, sorted or, or accumulated or shared or whatever it is, but it's pulled from the people you're working with in the development team and across the organization. And you know, you've got great conversations going on when the finance team sends their representative to you and says, hey, we need to update the warranty expenses. Uh, we need the, uh, the Weibel model for the system that we're getting ready to launch. And it's, it's an indicator that the team is finding value with say the modeling or the FMEA or the type of information that you're, you're working with. Um, it's, a, I would say it's a really good thing to have going, but it's one of those that if you l- don't also capture and reinforce how valuable those activities are, um, and how natural it is to be part of the development process, and this is why we're doing it. We still need to reinforce those parts of it. Um, as organizations change and priorities change and focus changes, if it's not actually shown why it's so valuable in a regular basis to reinforce what they're already finding out, um this can corrode or erode away a little bit. But it's a symptom of a When people come to you and say, hey, we need to get together and update the FMEA, we've accomplished some stuff, we need to know what the next set of priorities are, we have new information, that's a really, really good sign and it's a symptom of a good discussion. So hopefully you have a bunch of those. And then another one is where folks are saying, hey, I want to extend the engineering work that we're doing already you know, we're going to do a SPICE model for our electronic circuits in these, these critical circuitry piece of this, but they come to you and say, how do we um, change the parameters such that these are aged parts? You know, we know that resistance drifts, capacitance drifts, different kinds of things change with electronics, and you can incorporate that into SPICE models, uh, finding an element with mechanical systems and materials. And so that's a symptom of a really good discussion uh, of, of an of what I would say is an area that you know you're there and you got a good team you're working with when they're coming to you for these nuanced pieces to extend what they're already doing, and so that's that's a, a symptom of a good discussion, and another one is when the customers notice, right? When the I had one organization years ago um, making laptops, and they this is early, early on in laptops, and they wanted to position their laptops as the best reliability among the laptop options. Uh, At that point, Dell had great customer service um, because their laptops failed like everybody else's did, but they um, actually made that a benefit and somebody else had the lowest price. And so uh, these guys wanted to be the most reliable And the question was, well, how much more reliable do we need to be in order for customers to recognize it? Well, that's a good question. It's not one I was prepared to answer, but we went and talked to a variety of folks in their marketing group and and got some rough targets. And then it was limited by the technology that was available. But at some point, they started to recognize this is the most reliable product and in the market. And that was the driver for the growth of their sales over time. But it was a deliberate uh, request or discussion about, well, how good does it need to be? And, and that was a great discussion. Even though the product at the time, early laptops were dismal field reliability, uh, but they recognized that there was an opportunity there in order to build reliability very deliberately into the product but connected to the growth of their market share to the growth of the perception and they had to make it real uh, not just the advertising campaign but they actually had to make products that were more reliable than the other ones and so we did a bunch of work with them to sort that out but those are all three really good ideas to do this but how do you The question here is though is how do you encourage people to have good discussions right so those are examples of them and i mentioned that on the first one is that you need to reinforce it to to say you know this is this is updating the fmea and i'm glad you asked to do this but this is why it's valuable or this is how the results of what we're doing really makes a difference You know, the the three things we solved and reduced their RPNs over the last month, those equate to X number of dollars of uh, avoided field failures and the costs associated with it. So how do you encourage good discussions? Let's see. Yeah, problem definition, right, good. Yeah, good one, Nelson, is being able to listen to say, you know, let's, let's sort this out and let's, let's sort out what problem we're trying to solve, make sure we're in the right direction. Yeah, I would, you know, Mehandra, I would also look at sharing examples of previous successes and how useful those were. So it works both ways. You can, you can say, hey, this is great work because we're avoiding these past problems like a delay of uh, product launch and all of its associated costs. Or, you know, this kind of activity helps us to actually launch on time. Look at how valuable that is. Yeah, yeah, talk to customers. It takes some trust on the marketing and sales team to let us do that, but uh, it's often very, very valuable. Yeah, good. All good. Thanks, Larry. Feedback to the designers. And it's feedback that it has to be of value to the team you're working with, right? It might be cost reduction. It might be time to market. Uh, it might be feature set. Um, in some organizations, they actually care about reliability and and they want to know how well that What they're doing makes a difference, and those are all good things. Part of it is to be willing to have these discussions and support them, but also to reinforce them. So that's the basic message, which is the good stuff. Now, I didn't want to talk about all the good discussions all the time, so let's talk about some of the ones that give you an opportunity to make a difference within the discussion and to change things. Um, These are ones that I I noticed, and when I asked it earlier, are a good swath of you run into ones I put into this group. Now, we often get resistance. You want how many samples? You want to do this? You want to do that? What do we need a goal for? We just need to make it as good as or better than last time. We know what we're doing. Um, you know, We don't need no root cause. I know what the problem is. Let's go solve it. Right? We hear stuff like that all the time. Now, these are more subtle um, to to change. Now, part of it is is I think it was um, oh, where was it? One of the comments was, you know, remember past failures or past successes, and and this part you do need to do some data. So let's just look at root cause here, for example. And I'm sure every one of you has been in a room where it's a a big field problem. You got a team together to help you solve it. Uh, First step is, well, what is the problem? What is the symptoms that you're getting? And somebody says, oh, I know exactly what that is. We don't need to have a meeting. I'm gonna go change it and we'll be fine. And then two weeks later, you're back in the room trying to solve the same problem the, we don't, you know, the other part of that is we don't have time to talk about this. We need to just go take action. And there's a lot of resistance to actually understanding a failure before you go solve it. But the idea here is that in a failure reporting and corrective action system or a fracas system or something similar is take a look at The different, you know, take notes as to which ones were a team effort and you actually got to a root cause. And root cause meaning you can turn it on and off. You have enough understanding of the phenomena that you can say, oh, if we make this a cold solder joint and give it some vibration, it will fail. Or if we do X, it'll cause this failure to manifest. If we do change it slightly or do it you know, uh, then it doesn't occur, we probably have a good understanding of the root cause to that level. Uh, It doesn't have to be, you know, a PhD level thesis study of understanding, but it needs to be enough that you can understand exactly what you need to change such that it connects to that failure occurring or not occurring. Now, of course, it's way more complicated than that. In some cases, sometimes it's pretty easy. But the idea is, to keep track of which ones had a good understanding of the root cause versus ones where we just tried something and which has the better success rate. Now, intuitively, we know that if we understand the problem, we have a better success rate. But even just shooting from the hip, we often can solve problems, but at what rate? You know, and if you have a handful of experienced engineers and they're really good at that, well, then you might have evidence that that's the way to do it until they don't. Understanding the root cause of issues gives you, in my opinion and my experience, a much higher probability of actually solving the problem. Now, nobody likes it when you say, I told you so. But if you take track of the data and just show, here's the first time success rate is solving problems when we do root cause analysis versus when we don't, there's data, there's evidence there. And and it's not blaming anybody, it's not pointing the fingers at anybody, but it gives you evidence that says, there's a better way to do this. And that's where I think these, these kinds of discussions have to really focus on the process works you know, whatever, whichever process it is, but it it allows us to make better decisions. It allows us to solve it right the first time. Um, The idea of of breaking prototypes um, is, and I think I have another slide that's going to talk about this, but the idea is, is that we want to learn something. You know, we, if we're doing HALT, yes, we're planning on breaking these things you know, you can have as many samples as you want, as long as we can sell them. It's not the same idea as learning something for how do they fail? What kinds of stresses cause problems that are of concern are, are likely to occur in the field or manifest as field problems. So the basic idea here is that with these kinds of pushback and stuff, and we often run into these things, is being prepared here's the value of learning how things fail so that we can get to the root cause and actually design it out of the product. If we just run tests to success, we have no failures. And now we don't know if it's got any margin, if it's uh, process variability is gonna be a problem, if, you know, whatever, if what's going to cause problems in the field and the cost of, finding out when it's in the field is way larger and and disruptive to our process of creating the next product because half our team has to go solve previously uh, or failure mechanisms that we should have solved during the design. But again, it's one of those where I bite my tongue and say, I'm not going to tell you I told you so. But here's the logic. If we break things now, we can understand how it fails and we can make conscious decisions to improve it or not, as opposed to waiting for failures to appear late in the program, we delay it or in the field and now it's an emergency and the associated cost. So at some point you're gonna say pay me now or pay me later, but please don't use those words. Most program managers don't appreciate that, but it's focusing on what's important to them. Is it development cost? Is it time to market? Is it what? But then look at having each of these different things and all the different things that we get to push back on with a clear connection to where it makes sense, how it adds value to our program and, and to helping them make better decisions. Now, all of you have had... Uh, Bad discussions with vendors. I remember years and years ago, I had a a, a product came back from the field. It had a, a circuit board that was failed. There was no obvious corrosion or missing parts or cold solder joints. It was within a uh, ASIC, and so I called up the vendor and they say, "Oh, I know what that is. That's that's ESD damage. Um, somebody touched it with you know too much charge on their on their body and zapped it." I said, you don't even know what product I'm talking about or what component I'm talking about. How do you know it's ESD? He goes, oh, it always is. Well, if you assume it always is, then it always is. <laughs> and so I complained to a, a colleague of mine and he said, well, that's just one of the five common responses. You know, it's like, well, it's ESD. And and it, and it just went on from there. It, it was like, oh, let's see, it could be... Um, we send the product back or the component back to them, and they say no trouble found, works fine for us. Must be your 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 system. Oh, it's customer abuse. You guys didn't design it correctly. Oh, it was you know. Oh, we knew about it, but we solved it already. Or some of the common vendor responses to it's not our fault? Say you know it's 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 your fault. The The discussions I get from vendors, you know, when when you do have a failure uh, are often not all that useful. So I often advertise or recommend do your own failure analysis. Don't send it to the vendor unless you have to. But other things show up is in conversations that we have within our organization is, well, they gave us an MTBF number. That's good enough. Let's just use that. And, you know, you've all heard my stories about that. But the idea is, is that It's a fan, bearings wear out. It's not a constant failure rate. How are we going to deal with this? It's not repairable. It's all these other things. How are we going to estimate this with this bogus data? So asking better questions is part of it, but within your own team, it's helping them understand that not all data from the vendor is good data and teach them the opportunity to say, well, how is it going to fail in our circumstance? How do you know it's going to fail? And what's your evidence? Those kinds of questions lead to a much more fruitful discussion with the vendor, rather than just saying, well, oh, the data sheet says it'll last five years. Well, what proportion are going to last five years? You know, it, it's an opportunity to tweak those conversations such that you, you do get better information from your vendors because we're not just simply a, a satisfied with their first response. Um, the other one I love is the vendors know their product the best. And, and that may be true in their assembly of that product, but I was working with a, a um, uh, inductor manufacturer, and these are discrete little components with uh, a magnet or a piece of metal with some, uh, coil wrapped around it. And sometimes these coils are hand, uh, wrapped. Oftentimes they are. And the vendor got really good at producing the specific amount of inductance within a, simple for, within a specified form factor. They were good at what they did. But I asked them, I says, how do you know, how do you evaluate your product for where it's going to be used? He goes, we have no idea where it's going to be used. They're in computers, they're in satellites, they're undersea, they're on the coast, they're at high altitude, they're everywhere. There's no way we know where the bulk of our products are used. We lose, because they sell to assembly houses that assemble the circuit boards and they rarely know what product it's even going on. And because it's considered a commodity component. And so if we're using a component that we're using it in a unique environment, that's a different discussion than just saying, oh, they know what they're doing because they may well not have much information or desire to know. Now, some of them will will heartily join that conversation if you're willing to share how you're using their product and will it work or not work. Uh, But uh, just default trusting them that they know what they're doing may or may not be applicable. I think I actually got that word close to being pronounced right is to, 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 to work in your circumstance. And so uh, discussions with vendors, um, I find sometimes are overly influenced by how good of a lunch they provide. And, um, we got to get into the technical details and, and train and work with our team to effectively work with vendors to get the reliability information we really knew, we really need to, to use. And then there's, the discussions that we get where it's, oh, it's just another, you know, we, we've gotten five failures and it didn't boot up, so it must be the power supply. And we didn't even look to see if there, if there was anything wrong with the power supply or not. All right? It could be many, many things that are part of the issue. Or in many organizations, this no fault found or no trouble found is like 25% of your field returns. Uh, I've seen that in organization after organization. but why are so many customers sending us back good products? Now uh, it could be that it's the wrong color, or it doesn't have the feature set that is expected it was expected to have, or we're not actually evaluating it well enough to understand how it's failed. In their circumstance, they find it it's failed or doesn't meet their needs. What about our return process and uh, analysis of it to determine whether that's effective or that's actually nothing wrong with the product or not? Um, and I'm sure you've run into taking a, a vehicle into your auto mechanic and you know there's a squeaky sound in the back and they call you three hours later saying, we can't find that. There's nothing wrong with this. Now, sometimes it's just the environment. You only hear it in a quiet day when you're next to a fence, for example. Well, up on a rack, they have lots of other noise going on, so they don't have that ability to hear it. It may cost them a bunch more to figure out how to replicate the sound that you're doing. If we shortchange that process of figuring out how things work, then that's a problem, right? Um, So the... These kinds of pushback or, or symptoms, I should say, parts of the discussion that we have, is uh, the status quo, the way we just do business is not actually useful, right It's not leading us to making better decisions or learning stuff about what's happening in in the with customers in the field. The other two I mention here are this is yeah, this will go away this. It's just a test, and we don't really pay attention to the results of the test, but we'll add it to the checklist. and so whatever. You, you need another two hundred dollars to run that test. Okay, fine. But I don't really care about the results. That's an opportunity to take a look at whether it's testing or say you're introducing the team to derating or stress strength calculations. It's why does that make difference? Why does what's the information out of this test or out of this procedure? actually do to make to create value? How does it actually help you do your job better? Those kinds of things what's in it for them is often a part of these of these things. If we spend more time understanding field failures, we'll have a better customer satisfaction. It would be one argument, but how do you connect those? That, that's a difficult part. So there's a handful of bad discussions. Um, what other examples can you think of? right? What other bad discussions have you run into? I just highlighted, I don't know, five or six of them there. And then more importantly, what do you do about it? Uh, no trouble found. Yeah, that, I never heard of weep before, uh, Larry. That's a good one. So, what do you think what are what are what some of your favorite resistance type discussions are pushing back on you passed the gross test, so it's ready to ship yep, okay. <laughs> we don't have time for that, yeah, Michael. that's a common one and right? Do you have time to fix it later? It's kind of my pushback a lot of times. That doesn't go very far a lot of times. We have other priorities. Tiger team voted to fix. Yeah, yeah, don't go asking for verification, Larry. That's that's adding time again. Too late to make changes? Yeah, I mean, Andrew, I've heard that one before too. And sometimes that's valid, you know, if you're late in the program, and it's gonna cost you $100,000 uh, of delay, for due to delay or do whatever. And if the problem gets to the field, it's only cost you $10,000, well then economically it makes sense to ship it and pay for it later. Um, but sometimes that's absolutely reversed. It might be a $10,000 fix and it'll save you $100,000 in the early shipments. It, you gotta work out the details of what's the business proposition. Oh, that's, oh, it's only a theoretical spec. That's so we don't have to make it. Is that what you're saying, David? Is they say that that's just a, we, we don't have to pay attention to it because it's just theoretical. That's a good one. Yeah, we do preventative maintenance. Yeah. So the, the maintenance to the text will keep it running. We don't have to design it well. Yeah. Right. Yeah, good, good. All good ones. Only saw it once. Oh, that's a good one, Bartholomew. You know, um, some of you, I'm sure, have heard this story. Is, uh, there is a San Diego division of HP that at one point hired an intern to take a look at the field returns they were getting for a product that had been out in the field for a, a year or so, and look at the internal database of what they noticed during the development process. The product took about a year to develop and they had a fracas system. Uh, it kept track of issues and things they found. And then they triaged them and they, you know, worked off the important ones, safety ones, stuff like that, and kind of worked down the list. And the question to the intern was: they asked her if we would have spent another month you know, given the rate that we were solving these problems that we are identified, how many more problems would we have solved that would have showed up in the field? You know, basically, if we would have worked on solving more issues for 30 more days, how many field problems would we have avoided? And that was a brilliant project. I wish they would have published it. But she found out that there was about a 95% overlap of issues found in the field were issues that they had seen during development. And it was like 85-ish percent of those things would have been addressed if they would have um, spent one more month on it. And it's a hard thing to do when you're in the, all of these things are moving and you got to get out to the manufacturing, ramped up and get to production and, and hit the shelves at certain times and advertising, all these other factors of it. But it was one of those things that when they tallied up the numbers, it would have saved them millions of dollars if they would have spent one more month getting the the product a bit more reliable. And of course, these were all issues that weren't showstoppers. These were all minor defects that most people said, we only saw that once, or it's not a big deal, or it'll never go. But there was no time, perceived time for research of how important that was. But when you start making millions of products, even something you see only once in development, it can well be a 5 or 10% defect rate in the field. And so they, the study in reinforced for them to go deeper down that list, go into those areas where it's single appearance or it's considered a minor defect or those kind of things, because they make a huge difference, especially in volume products, once you get to the field, and so that was that was one that I saw. Let's see some of these other ones Too late, yeah. all good ones. the The hard part here is, and is like I mentioned earlier, is not saying I told you so, but it's if we solve this, this will make this difference. If we fix this, it'll make this difference. If we get better data, we'll make better decisions. Here's the evidence of how these things change. Now, you might not win all of those discussions, and it's not a win or not win. And a lot of times it's really just a um, a an awareness that what we're doing now and the way we do business and the way we're making priorities and decisions is not serving our customers and our business. And making those connections obvious, Uh, Without blaming anybody, uh, but looking at the structure of the organization that forces people to say, oh, yeah, I like this one, but it's just a prototype, that'll never happen. Well, you know, if you can tie it to that, my other favorite is the software guys were complaining that the hardware kept failing so they couldn't do their job, but they never actually reported the hardware failures to anybody because that's not their job. (laughs) There's another one. But anyway, there's each one of these discussions is a point to say, well, this is why it's important. This is how our process is forcing us to make these poor decisions. And here's the consequence of those things. And it could take the form of many different things. And you're feeling, hopefully you're seeing this thread of connecting it to value to your organization, whichever source of value makes sense for your particular circumstance. And that's a part of it. All right. Well, let's dive into a couple of of the ugly ones, right? The ugly decisions. The ones that you know you're in big trouble if these discussions are happening, right? One of my favorites was somebody said, well, we only expect this product to work for two years, but we've got a 50,000 hour MTBF, which is you know, five years roughly of, of usage time for our product, so it must be good. And, you know, you know how I feel about MTBF and MTTF. Uh, others uh, I've heard say, well, of course we use it, these MT values, because that's what our industry uses. Okay. And you're experiencing a 30% field rate problem. And one of them was from an actual client and I said, well, what's your goal of your product? And it was a big complex product. Think supercomputer style product. And they said, um, we want no more than one downing event per quarter. Okay, okay, we can work with that. Let's translate that. And they said, they, but they wanted it expressed as MTBF, and, all right? Four events out of 8,000 hours, what's that 2000 MTBF, something like that off the top of my head. Somebody could do the calculation faster than I can, which sounds great, right? And I said, well, what is that when we put it into simple exponential distribution, just a rough guess of this, you know? And it was like 20, 30%, something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers we were using, but the, and he said, well, we can't set a goal of 30% reliable per year. Because that doesn't sound good. Well, it's no different than saying you have a 2000 hour MTBF, you know, kind of thing. And so the discussion was the perception of what sounded better or what the industry always did or whatever. It wasn't connected at all to how does it help them make better decisions or how does it reinforce a clearer picture of the reality that they're dealing with? Yeah, fear of job reduction. I don't know that anybody I've ever met has lost their position because their product was too reliable. Um, We often joke or even talk about is we should be working our way out of a job. It should be part of the reliability thinking should be embedded within the organization. And that it just frees us up. If our product is actually working, we can actually spend a lot of quality time actually making more significant improvements in the overall production or the development process itself, uh, as opposed to firefighting all the time. There's uh, the reliability maturity matrix when you're proactive has so many more benefits, although it's not as visible as being the hero that saved the day kind of thing. one of my favorite discussions is well we're only designing this so it works in the flat part of the bathtub curve and using that mistaken belief that there is a flat part and it's like all right what evidence do you have that it's true one of them i was working with it was a defense uh, contractor and they said well we've never ever had any components that or any systems that exhibited anything except constant failure rate. I says, really? And I knew they had fans and elements that wore out and all kinds of other things like that. And then I know that they had early life failures for all kinds of manufacturing problems. I says, really, what evidence do you have for that? And he goes, well, when we do data analysis, we just assume it's in the flat part of the curve because that's the only part we're interested in. So we assume it's a constant failure rate. Therefore, they all are constant failure rates in all of our analysis, okay? I don't know how to come back from that one. I just got up and left. It was like, that's just not worth talking to you anymore. Luckily, they'd already paid me for my time. But the idea is that some of the concepts and beliefs that are out in the reliability engineering world and literature are just so wrong and so pervasive that they've just grounded people in a a world that it's very difficult to get them out of. And it does take time. And so it's this notion that, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yet they also also have broken their feedback mechanism to understand how bad their situation actually is. Well, that was just, like the earlier one well that was a prototype we don't need to pay attention to those failures those kinds of things so this is as you know i could talk about this topic for a long long time but i'll spare you that let's see yeah i, I like yours nelson on the vendor one. we'll take care of it and then you hear nothing and nothing really makes a difference um it reinforces my notion that if it's important to you, do your own failure analysis or hire a local lab to do it for you, you invest in getting the right answer. And then you have evidence. You can go to the vendor and say, hey, you're not applying enough adhesive to this component. And that's why it's coming apart. What's re- Let's get into your process and understand why this is occurring. We actually bring them useful information and say, hey, we need to, to fix this, not to blame them or do anything else. although sometimes that does occur. So let's take another one here. I actually had a general manager when I were doing a, a, uh, assessment of their organization. He, He asked, so why are we here? Why are we talking about reliability? That's, you know, it's not a problem for us. And I said, even though you're only tracking the cost of spare parts, not the labor, not the replacement costs, not the customer complaints, not the call centers, not your field service team, you know, reinstalling a component that is brand new for the one that just failed. Those costs are in the millions and you're not tracking them as failures. You're counting spare parts for tens of thousands of dollars. And he goes, exactly. It's not a problem. And, it, and I said, half of your products fail every year and, and he he said, well, cu- no, they don't. Customers just like complaining. That's what they do. Customers complain. And it says they've never, you know, this hospital administrator has never called you to say, why is your product not working? He says, well, they just like complaining. That's what they do. And he brushed it off. He just said, that's not an issue. Well, that's the tip of a much larger story, but eventually we made some significant changes there. Um, so that, uh, on somebody that actually paid attention to customers and what they needed for this product to actually do and do it over time successfully. And But you've all run into these where um, the biggest Pareto on your field returns is, well, that's customer abuse. We don't need to solve those. Well, if 60% of your products are coming back because you're calling it customer abuse, um, that's probably not a good symptom to to ignore. You probably need to really do something about that. Uh, one, find better customers, maybe, or create a product that they can't abuse as readily, or maybe they're using it in a way that's a new product idea. You know, there might be some else there altogether. Uh, I know some of you have heard the story about the um, uh, the barcode reader for baggage handlers at airports their first product that went out to do this feature, this company that I know about um, realized that these folks were likely to drop this device, this electronic wireless uh, barcode scanner. And so they put it in a, a, one of those shells to absorb shocks and stuff like that. And all of them came back in a couple of weeks. They, they got, way more drops. And their first attempt at this was look at standards. And they said, Well, if you drop it 10 times from three feet on the concrete, and it passes that you're fine. Well, any casual observer at an airport will realize that three feet is too low. Um, and 10 times is too low, if you want your product to last more than a week or two. And so they changed their standard. They said, all right, designers, we need to go from 10 feet or, and they, I think they eventually got to 22 feet and over hundred drops before they got the field problem low enough that it wasn't a big problem for them anymore. Their products just basically just worked and typically failed for other issues, not just the shock damage. And so, The idea of just blaming the customer is convenient and not all that helpful. And that's a hard one to to break over, break out of. And you're right, Bartholomew, considering expected misuse is is standard practice in some industries, especially when it comes to safety or patient uh, patient health or patient safety. It's often part of a good FMEA process. That allows us then to um, uh, anticipate the types and range of stresses that the product's likely to experience. And so the hard part here is that when you start blaming the customer, or you start blaming a vendor, or you start blaming a uh, well, the design team didn't have enough funding, and now they're all working on the next product, but also spending half their time fixing the previous one. So this new product just won't have enough time to be designed correctly. And then just blaming that it's, we're in a vicious cycle, we can't get out of it. Those are all things that are symptoms that we've got a structural problem, and and maybe even an attitude problem. And, And it does take some connecting these things to, well, how much is this really costing us? Or what is the ramifications of this process continues. Those are elements of it. Oh, why 22 feet Kent? Good question. That was the height of the room they could get their ramp to go up to. Uh, They had a a little system that would take the product up to the top and it would get released and then it would drop onto their their surface under their concrete pad they had. Um, Short of uh, adding an extension to the roof 22 feet was what they could do. And so they just then increased the number of drops uh, in order to do it. They did think about accelerating it using it like a, um, an air gun kind of thing to get it up to velocity for a higher problem. Um, but the, they found that, and it took them a number of years to go from three feet to six feet to 12 feet. Then they jumped to like 40 feet, or not 40 feet, to, to uh, uh, 20 feet or the 22 foot one, and then they started increasing the number of drops. And they were doing that along the lines of this, but it, each time they up the ante on it, they looked at the field returns and they found there was a direct correlation between the two, the more robust that we make the drop test to call it a pass, the lower the warranty. And so that encouraged them to go to the limit that they could find. And and it, and it then got that warranty rate for drop-related failures down to less than half percent, whereas before it was near 100 percent in a very short period of time. And so, once they saw that correlation, then they really just focused on that test and used it for a major input into their design process. Um, there was one way to go at it. Okay, let's see another favorite of mine is that failures are bad. We often, and I ran into a colleague years ago that says, you know, you have to understand the management team and the product managers and the development team, they're all trying to make it work, right? They're in success space. They, they want it this product, when you push this button, this green light will come on kind of things. They want it to work. They're they're creating prototypes to see what works as much as they're looking for how to make improvements, but they're generally focused on make it work. Now, Henry Petrosky in his work posits that good designers design away from failure. So having information about where the margins are, where failures do occur is useful information for good designers. But in some organizations, it's, it's just not safe to say, hey, this isn't working, right? Mean, it's, it's seen as, well, you notice it, you fix it. Or you noticed it, you must have broke it. What did you do? It turns into blame. Well, I'm not going to tell you about anything I see anymore because you're just going to blame me for it. Well, that doesn't, it's not helpful to anybody. Others are, and I've run into this with a major chip manufacturer. They said, well, we only run industry standard tests that, and we only uh, report things that, that's passed. And I said, well, how many times did you do this temperature humidity test? We had to do that six times before we got one that passed. Okay. What did you do with the ones that failed? Well, they must have been bad batches. So we're, we're not using those. We're, we're only using the one that passed. Did you make any design improvements or process changes? No, no, no. Those are bad tests. Okay. <laughs> Sigh. Um, the, the idea of a culture that thinks failures are bad is missing the information that comes from that. They're missing the, the opportunity to actually understand it and make improvements. And I think that I'm preaching to the choir here on that one. But the idea is that there are some organizations that say, don't bring me failures, bring me solutions, All right? Don't talk about failures. We don't need to track failures. We don't have customer service tracking of, of customer complaints. Those are failures. We don't need to deal with them. We're We're success oriented. I've actually run into organizations like that and And they were just ignoring the issues that were they were creating. And it doesn't make them go away, right? It doesn't change anything. The reality is if your product doesn't work, the customers are going to vote with their dollars at one point or another in that in that scenario. So what other, you know, Types of discussions, good, bad, or ugly. Have uh, you had uh, other ugly ones? I again just touch the, the the realm of these, um, and the the ugly ones are the hardest ones, in my opinion, to change. They take a bit of more patience than I typically have, but they also take a lot of awareness of what's that cycle or process, and where does it lead, which is the natural uh, result of these kinds of ugly discussions, and where does that lead to an organization? And uh, yeah, I worked with one organization, they refused to have prototypes. Every item they ever made, they shipped. Even though it was a brand new high-tech design, um, they would repair it enough times that they would ship it. And their attitude was, well, the contract is for 10 units, and they're paying us for 10 units, so we're not going to make an 11th unit as a prototype. Uh, we're not going to sell all 10. We're only going to buy 10 sets of components. And, and that was just, and they were wondering why the vast majority of their products failed over and over again. You know, Bartholomew, I, I, when I worked at HP, we we often ran into the idea of it's not a failure, it's an opportunity, or it's, you know, it, we kind of rephrased it as it's a it's not a problem. It's a, a, a it's a chance to make improvement or something like that. Sometimes the the wording we use does make a difference. Um, but I also run into, you know, it's not a requirement, so I'm just going to ignore it and and we'll leave that to the next team to do. Now, sometimes that makes sense, but it's also, if it's used as a convenient way to avoid taking on a challenge or fixing a problem that's really going to be a significant problem in the field or push down the road well then that's 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 pretty bad business yeah talk about right we don't have time to talk about reliability we just got to get this prototype to work first it, you know and then when it's a a new invention or a new concept or something like that, yeah, you know, if they get one to work, then we can, we have a a plan, a record, and we can start working on it. But I stay involved with, well, what are the issues you are seeing? What are the trade-offs you're making? Which kinds of failures are you experiencing that makes you think it's not working? Because those will continue to be there um, in one form or another oftentimes as that program develops. So it's a good place to, yeah, all right, you guys do your... Magic there, um, but I'm going to take notes because these things will come back. Oh, wow. More more in the field, fixing things than designers. Yeah, and I've often asked the, the directors of engineering, what proportion of your staff is working on past problems versus on the new stuff? And it's typically 25%. It can be worse, as you just illustrated, Larry, but it, it also... Um, well managed in a good organization, it can be much much less. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. We can't just decree it. Good one, Michael. It's it really is. It's an opportunity to make improvements, and it. I. Oftentimes, it's you need a handful of champions to get enough momentum behind those kinds of discussions, to change the culture of how we look at failures or how we. Um, uh, assign blame versus looking for process improvements those kinds of things um, it it takes somebody that's willing to support we need to look at this in a different way and that level of change in our organization is not one to take on alone you need lots of champions on your side and lots of senior management covered to really be successful with that Yeah. Ads workload, you know, and Mahendra that I've heard, I hear you on that one. And what the hard part is, is, you know, pay me now or pay me later. And, and there's saying, well, if we're spending 25% of our time fixing past problems, we don't have time to design it. Right. Now it's a vicious circle, right? And so it's, how do we help them recognize that? Um, I oftentimes would show that ad from a Super Bowl years ago, if there were, making the air or manufacturing the airplane while it was in flight and they got it all buttoned up and all the seats in place and the windows attached and the rivets on the wings and then they parachute the crew parachuted off and the passengers and the flight attendants and the pilots you know kept on flying and you know job well done kind of thing sometimes it feels like that when you're trying to make structural changes to an organization and let's get the design right um, that's where you really need the support to have enough resources, time, and focus to actually get it right. And then see what the benefits are. And, and the hard part, a lot, a lot of what we do is it takes time for the results to appear. And, but making it clear, making it connected to, this is why we do these activities in design, like FMEA and so on, so that we don't spend half of our next years solving problems that we should have fixed. And that is often very hard to see when you're in an organization that's focused on the next quarter, for example. So let's see if I missed any here. Yeah, good quote. Let's see. So anyway, um, I think I got one more question for you. So my intent here was to say, there's different kinds of conversations that occur. And as a couple of you mentioned, there's a mix. We see a, a range of these different ones, depending on the who we're talking to and when and, and under what circumstance. But the idea is to recognize those. The good discussions need reinforcement, right? We need to make sure that those remain valuable so that they are talked about, that we just continue to do the activities that actually help us make a reliable product. And one way that I know of to do that is to reinforce how useful and valuable those activities are. That is why we don't go off and fix field problems all the time. That's why we have a low warranty rate. Those are not happenstance, that's because the team is actually talking about and implementing reliability into the design process. The bad discussions, as I loosely characterized them, are opportunities to to fill in some gaps and to improve the the type of information and resources that are available to help them understand the connection of, yeah, we need to break prototypes and learn from them. Of course, as a it's more of the answering the why questions. Why are we doing this? What's the connection? How does this benefit me or you or the customer? How does this work? Some of it is, is, can be solved with training, some of it by helping them understand how it actually does make their job easier. Now that the ugly discussions are more structural and more mindset. And that takes a lot more effort to change yet. I found that chipping away at it and and reinforcing what is it the organization is there to do, and how the current structure and atmosphere is leading to very poor performance and what we're trying to achieve. But it also requires you need some champions, you need some support. You need a handful of influential people that also recognize, that what we're doing now is not going to work long-term and that may or may not occur if that if you can't find enough support um then it's probably you know time to go find another organization but if the if the culture is toxic and it's a blame game and they really don't see that any need to change that atmosphere well there's not a lot we can as individuals can do about it. It it can be done. It takes being very astute and developing those champions for you, but it it does take work. So that's the big challenge. So hopefully you don't see too many of those. Hopefully those bad discussions are recognized as opportunities to really hone and polish the system and the process so that you can uh, bring along more people into understanding that, reliability doesn't just happen by magic. It happens because they make good decisions and you're there to support that and to help them to do that. And so that's hopefully you see a few of those and you convert more of them into good discussions. And that would be a a fine output or outcome for this uh, short uh, discussion on the topic. Yeah, providing, you know, providing education, logic trail, good, good examples, how it impacts. Um, I've had companies say, well, we need it to be unreliable because that's how we make money. And that's a hard argument because they make money on repairs and that's a hard argument to overcome. So it's risky to go to the customers and say, this is what the game they're playing here. This is, you know, be a whistleblower. Sometimes that might be what it takes. Um, not that I'm recommending it. That's a personal decision. All right. Well, thank you, Bartholomew. Uh, and let's pull up our last slide. I might actually end right on time. Amazing how that happens. So thanks for all the input in dis- in, in, uh, examples and examples and so on. As I suspected, there's many, many examples of good, bad, and ugly discussions out there. Hopefully, you picked up a couple of ideas of one, how to recognize them and how to to turn them, to reinforce them or convert them into good discussions. So with that, I'll say best of luck to you. Let me know how it goes, what successes or not you have. And uh, we'll see with that how it goes from there. All right, thanks all. And let your friends know, we're gonna have a recording up in a couple of days up on Ascendo Reliability. And uh, next week we have an open discussion session at this time on Tuesday. Uh, so bring your questions and you can and then the week after that is um, uh, Chris Jackson, and he's got something he's going to be talking about root cause analysis. To, and I, I don't remember exactly what the thread was, but it's uh, why do we need root cause analysis or something along that lines? So great, thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. We'll talk to you next week or soon thereafter. Oh, mm-hmm. oh,